Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. First of all, let me say, it is a full moon as of the day we're recording, and I can feel it in the air. Also, it is sort of well into the fall, and I'm feeling really good about it. Also, we had this, like, weird fall thunderstorm happen, which, yeah. I don't know, there's some there's some weird shit in the air. I don't know how I feel about it. Everyone's acting bizarre. I don't know. <laughs> I did see some lightning, uh, but we haven't gotten any rain yet, but I'm, I'm ready for it. I love uh, a late summer, early fall thunderstorm. There's just something about, like, the spooky vibes that sit very nice within my heart. I wish this time of year lasted longer. I really do. I wish that we lived in a place like we all think of the four seasons as being fairly equal across the year. But unfortunately, where we live, that's kind of not the case. And the fall or the autumn, depending on where you're from, seems to fly by very quickly, unfortunately, because it is my favorite. Mine, too. It's just beautiful. It's the time for horror movies and warm drinks and, you know, pumpkin spice and all that good stuff. Hey, you're going to be proud of me. I uh, got out of the house and went to the movies. Really? Yeah. So I checked out the Metro in Edmonton here, which if you haven't checked it out, I can't believe I've never been. Oh, I love going to the old movies there. It's amazing. What a good experience it always is. It really was. If you live in Edmonton or you visit Edmonton, go check it out. Uh, I went and saw the movie Talk to Me with my cousin and... um, It was good. I love Australian horror. Well, since, you know, Saw is directed by uh, an Australian guy as well, I've also had a love of Australian horror movies as well. There's some good ones out there. I recommend checking that one out. I'm trying to watch more horror movies because I have not been into the new ones very much. I've been rewatching like the Alien movies and and stuff like that. And I'm catching up on all the new stuff that's come out that I haven't seen. And I am excited. We have been putting out some good shit lately. Yeah, I also have to catch up on some of the sort of new classics as well. There's a lot that I haven't seen. And same thing, I, I really am doing myself a disservice by not going to see them. So I definitely need to do that this Halloween season. All right, everyone. We talk about death and dying a lot on this podcast, as we you do. all know. It's kind <laughs> of our thing. Uh, but we are entering some very, very gruesome territory today. I don't know if this episode warrants a warning beforehand, so I will give you all a small piece of advice. We don't advise listening to this one while you are eating. Today we are going to be talking about the Byford Dolphin accident. And no, this has nothing to do with dolphins. Instead, we will be covering five of the most horrific deaths we've ever talked about. Death by rapid decompression is not a good way to go. The Byford Dolphin has come up a fair bit more lately due to the Ocean Gate disaster with Titan. And if you're interested in that, we talked about it in detail on Extra Credit. And listen, if you haven't checked out that show, you need to, because otherwise you need to get your act together. It's fun. It is. I have a good time recording that one. Actually, my mom just told me tonight that she listened to our latest Extra Credit episode and enjoyed it. So uh, my mama listens and she approves. So there you go. That's so wholesome. Thanks, (laughs) Tina's mom. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of the Bifurd Dolphin accident, we want to take some time to discuss what was happening out there to begin with and the jobs that these men had. 
The Biford Dolphin was a semi-submersed oil drilling rig. When the accident happened, it was situated in the Frigg gas field of the North Sea, and that area was considered to be a part of Norway. The victims of the accident would end up being from both Norway and the UK. And we're going to get into who all of those men were in a little bit. And actually, I have an uncle that works on the deep sea oil rigs out at sea, and he used to get flown out by helicopter all the time. That seems like a terrifying job. Well, he was, I believe, a radio operator. So he was up on the rig, pretty cozy from what I understand. So he would be out there for a few weeks at a time, and then he would come home and carry on back and forth kind of thing. That's awesome. That's a cool job. Yeah. We aren't going to get too far into how the oil rigs operate, but it is important to know that they require constant maintenance, especially at the bottom of the sea where the rig's large columns sit. This is obviously very deep, so in order for the work to be done, workers have to get into full scuba gear and dive down. In this case, the bottom of the Bifurd Dolphin was almost 500 feet deep. This puts anyone working that deep at risk of developing something called the bends. And once again, little extra credit plug, because if you listen to it, you would know all about the bends because we talked about it when we covered free diving. Essentially what happens is, as you go deeper and deeper into the water, the weight of the water will begin to apply pressure to the cells of your body. This causes nitrogen in our lungs to compress and release nitrogen gas into our bloodstream. If you ascend too quickly, your body does not have time to adjust to the change in pressure, and essentially you turn into a bottle of pop that someone has shaken up. And that can obviously lead to some serious issues. It's no joke. Decompression sickness, or the bends, is very fucking painful. Some of the symptoms are excruciating joint and muscle pain, as well as paralysis, heart attacks, strokes, and severe delirium. If left untreated, it can also cause issues with the body circulating blood, which will eventually cause heart failure and death. That all sounds absolutely terrible. The good news is, though, if it is caught early enough, it can be treated. The person is placed in a hyperbaric chamber for hours, sometimes days, where they just sit and wait while the pressure is slowly released. All of this can be avoided if you ascend properly, meaning you take breaks every little while so that your body can adjust to the pressure. If saturation divers were to follow these protocols, they would have to take so many breaks that the entire process would take actual days. This simply just isn't economical for the companies that employ them, considering they only do a few hours of work at a time. The important thing to note is that your body can be underwater for as long as you want, as long as you have oxygen. And that is what makes saturation divers different. They spend up to 28 days living deep in the water. This time is spent living in cramped conditions that certainly aren't ideal, but they can make around $50,000 a month. This makes saturation diving one of the most well-paid jobs out there. And one of the most dangerous. They are brought down to these quarters in special diving bells. This entire thing is very complicated and requires a full crew to make it work properly and safely on top of the diving crew. The workers then spend their time living between two pressurized chambers. The longer they stay down, the more nitrogen saturates in their bodies, hence the name saturation divers. They have a cook on board for everyone, as well as life support technicians whose job it is to ensure that the pressure in the chamber matches the pressure outside of it. 
Another important job is that of the dive control team. They operate the diving bell and monitor the safety of the divers as they are working. And last, but certainly not least, they have a team called the tenders. It is their job to manage the thick line of air supply tubes and communication wires that go from the chamber to those at the surface. All of this leaves a lot of room for error in a situation where one mistake can mean certain death for everyone in the chamber. The time spent down there isn't exactly a vacation either. Like we mentioned, you have to live in very cramped quarters, and those on board breathe a specialized air mixture which causes constant chills. They breathe a helium-oxygen mixture, and you know what happens when you inhale helium, right? Apparently, they have to use special voice modulators to undo the sort of Donald Duck effect on their voices when they communicate with those on the surface. Charlotte, question for you. Mm-hmm. Would you do this even once for 50 k I have student loans, so yeah, I probably would. <laughs> I mean, it's a big risk, but for $50,000, I'd risk it, I think, honestly, even knowing what I know about the incident we're about to talk about. Those of you listening, I pose the same question to you. Let us know. Send us an email at thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com. Would you do this job for $50,000? And let us know also if you changed your mind between answering it right now as we ask and the end of the episode. I'm curious. I'm going to say, right, I would not do this. I think you're the smarter one here. I, I know how this ends and uh, no thank you. Yeah, I mean, it is, to be fair, a very rare incident, I believe, but it is pretty bad nonetheless. Okay, so we know that that was already a lot of information. We did our best at explaining everything, but we are by no means science experts. All of this brings us to November 5th, 1983. Martin Saunders and William Crammon, both experienced tenders, had just connected the diving bell to one of the living chambers. The two divers were able to exit the bell safely. Each living chamber could hold two divers at a time, so the other two divers had already been situated in their living quarters and were relaxing. Normally, the bell wouldn't detach until the door to the living chamber had been completely closed. This time, it detached before the chamber had been fully sealed. This instantly caused a reaction called explosive decompression. The air pressure went from nine atmospheres to one instantly, which caused an explosive rush of air out of the chamber. This sent the diving bell flying, which killed William Crammon and severely injured Martin Saunders. To put that in perspective, one is the current pressure we are all experiencing right now. Nine, of course, is nine times that level of pressure. So pressure from the outside pushing in on you. So this incredible weight all of a sudden. You're essentially being crushed by the air. Well put, yes. The other divers, Edwin Arthur Coward, Roy P. Lucas... Bjorn Yaver Bergerson and Truls Helvik were also killed instantly. Honestly, the fact that they were killed instantly is a huge blessing in this case. It really is. And this is the part of the episode where we're going to warn you not to look at the autopsy photos unless you really want to ruin your day. Because uh, I was going through the written autopsy report when I saw the pictures and they're bad. 
they are not recognizable as human beings anymore. Some of these men, they were reduced to what looks like clumps of like raw meat. It's like, it's one of those things like, you know, when your brain sees something and it has a hard time computing it because it just doesn't look like this could have ever been a person. That's exactly what I thought. Yep. Oh, it's horrific. So yeah, I mean, you know, do what you want, dear friends. But uh, we're just saying it's it ain't worth it. Some things are better left unseen. Absolutely. The following information about the victims is taken from the autopsy report from the University of Bergen in Norway. And again, it goes without saying, this is rough. One of the divers was shot out through the door that had a 60 centimeter opening. It is reported that he completely disintegrated and that parts of his body were found throughout the rig, including pieces of him that were located 10 meters above the chambers. And it gets worse. This, again, is from the autopsy report. The remains of Diver 4 were sent to us in four plastic bags. All parts show fractures and wounds. The fractures of the long bones were of transverse, as well as short and long oblique types. The fracture lines being more irregular than usual, with small splintered fragments. The scalp with long, blonde hair was present, but the top of the skull and brain were missing. The base of the skull was a collection of tiny bone fragments only. The soft tissues of the face were found, however, completely separated from the bones. The left upper arm had been separated from the body just below the shoulder joint. The right upper arm was torn to pieces, but still attached to the body. Both hands had been separated from the lower arms. The right thigh, leg, and foot were missing, but the knee joint was found. The left thigh had been separated from the pelvis just below the hip joint. The pelvis itself had been divided into three parts. To one of these parts, a small segment of the small bowel was attached. The penis was present, but invaginated. The soft tissues of the abdomen and the back had been cut straight through at a level about midway between the umbilicus and the pelvis, and thus had been separated from the pelvis. These soft tissues formed an empty sac. From above, one could look down through the larynx. All the thoracic and abdominal organs had been expelled, except the trachea and a fragment of the small bowel. Even the spinal column and most of the ribs had been expelled. The liver had been found somewhere on the deck. It was complete, as if dissected out of the body. Which all to basically say is he exploded. Yeah, I don't know which part of that I hated most, like... It was obviously this diver whose photos stayed with me the most when I read the report. The others are bad, but what happened to this person? It's hard to fathom that this happens. Yeah, the way that I would put it to you, if you're still a little confused as to what happened to this poor man, is he was essentially pulled by an unseen force through a very small opening that he did not fit through. Yep. The three remaining divers had essentially all the same injuries. All of their organs were found with large amounts of gas in the blood vessels, and their livers were enlarged. Fat mixed with gas bubbles was found in the cardiac chambers and vessels around the heart. It was described looking like sizzling butter on a frying pan. The brains of the three divers were pale, and the blood vessels were filled with gas. A yellow substance resembling fat was also found in the brain. It's really wild to see this in the photos because you can see large gas bubbles present essentially everywhere. Like there's one photo of their stomachs and you can see the bubbles in the blood vessels. And what happened to them was that they were essentially boiled alive. And that's what it looks like. 
It reminds me, I don't know if anybody out there is a fan of the James Bond movies at all, but I believe it was a Pierce Brosnan one where the bad guy like decompressed some people in a decompression chamber, which I'm sure would never happen like that in real life. But that's what it links my mind to when I think about this. That's basically it. Like when you see the photos, it's that's what it looks like. Yeah, it's a very gruesome way to go. And like I say, it was truly a blessing that it happened so incredibly fast within an instant that they likely didn't know what hit them. All right. Well, that was rough. Okay. So this is all very wild and gruesome and crazy. So let's talk about how the hell something like this could have even ever happened. Like it should not have happened. There was a strict five-step procedure to follow. Close the bell door. Slightly increase the bell pressure to seal the door tightly. Close the door between the trunk and the chamber. Depressurize the trunk to one atmosphere. And then finally open the clamp to separate the bell from the chamber system. For some reason, the bell was separated after only two steps had happened. A committee was formed to investigate the accident. They concluded that it happened to good old-fashioned human error. When William Crammon attempted to open the door, he rotated the center hinge too far to the left, which caused the rim of the inside hatch to lodge on the opening of the door. This left a crescent-shaped opening, kind of like when you partially uncover a peephole on a door. That was the opening that William Crammon would essentially be sucked through. It's unclear as to why an experienced tender wouldn't have followed the steps. It's possible that it was due to an incorrect order or that he acted on his own, and it was loud and hard to hear each other. It could have also been just human error due to exhaustion. The men had been living in these conditions and they were working very hard. There is another possibility. By the time the Bifurd Dolphin had been completed in 1975, it was already considered an obsolete design. There were no fail-safe hatches or outboard pressure gauges. Newer models also had an interlocking mechanism. If the Bifurd Dolphin had had this, the trunk would not have been able to have been opened while it was still under pressure, and this would never have happened. Former crew members of the Bifurd Dolphin claimed that the entire investigation was just a huge cover-up and that this happened due to a lack of proper equipment. I can see where they're coming from because essentially what happened was they spent all this time and money building the Bifurd Dolphin and when it was finally done there were safety changes like that interlocking mechanism that they should have had that they didn't. Like they were ill-equipped and that's what makes this so sad. And I can't imagine that there's that many deep uh, saturation divers out there. So a huge population of that particular profession died that day. It did. Um, in 2015, there were only 380-something people in the world that were saturation divers. Wow. So that's actually even smaller than I thought. So even to lose the people that they lost on that day, like I said, that's a huge chunk. Oh, absolutely. The North Sea Divers Alliance was formed by former divers as well as family members of the victims. They pushed for further investigation, and in 2008, they finally got the truth. The accident had actually been caused by faulty equipment. The daughter of diver Roy Lucas said in one interview, I would go so far as to say that the Norwegian government murdered my father because they knew that they were diving with an unsafe decompression chamber. 
The government paid out an undisclosed amount of money to the family of the victims, as well as to survivor Martin Saunders. What made this all even worse is that this wasn't the first time that a mass fatality had happened on the Bifer Dolphin. On March 1st, 1976, six people were killed when they fell out of their boats during an evacuation. And the 1983 incident would not be the last. In 2002, a 44-year-old Norwegian worker was killed on the Bifur Dolphin in an industrial accident, which caused them to lose their contract and fall under more scrutiny. However, it would remain fully operational until 2016. We've been talking about extra credit a lot today, which I'm fine with because it's great. Um, (laughs) But we end each extra credit show with a strange and unusual death. And there's so many horrific deaths out there that happen to someone while they were just trying to earn a living due to the company itself being cheap or just unwilling to abide by safety standards. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, capitalism has killed many, many, many people because people were willing to cut corners in order to save money or, you know, any other reason. I was thinking back to when we covered the Boston molasses flood. Oh, yeah. It's a similar thing. Like the people in charge knew they weren't doing enough to protect people. And it resulted in the horrific deaths of many. Like corporate greed is just the worst kind of greed. This makes me very sad for the survivor, Martin Saunders, because I believe he was one of the tenders, right? Yes. He probably thought for a very long time that he was responsible for the deaths of all these people being one of those tenders. And as it turns out... That wasn't the case at all. It was the faulty equipment, which should have been dealt with in the first place. It's, I mean, the survivor's guilt must have just been horrific. Brutal. I I can't imagine living with that. I did find a little bit about what happened to Martin Saunders. Oh, please. Uh, So he was caught in the rush of air that resulted from the decompression, and he had severe physical trauma. They were able to attend to him, like, because I mentioned that they have kind of a medical team on board. Mm -hmm. So they got to him in time and they saved him. He needed extensive medical intervention, surgeries, and the rehab was like years long. I believe it. He's very lucky to even be alive based on the absolute devastation this caused. Seriously. And I mean, of course, it had a huge effect on his psychological health. Oh, how could it not? He was dealing with a lot of survivor's guilt, but he did actually become an advocate for safety regulations in drilling operations because he would go and travel and talk about what happened and talk about why it's important to follow the safety rules that you have. You know what? This incident should never have happened in the first place, but I'm happy to see that he was like, I'll be damned if this is going to happen another time. Right. Like, I mean, he took a terrible thing and it, it did lead to changes in policy, which he saved lives because of that. Yes, absolutely. He did. So how do you feel after all that, Dina? I'm still not over the autopsy reports and what happened to the penis. It is quite detailed, and yes, I'm sure even those of you without uh, penises of your own cringed a little when you heard that part. Yeah, one of the things I thought about when the whole Ocean Gate thing happened was, again, at least they were quick deaths. 
Yes, instantaneous. If my time was up, I would want it to be instantaneous and I would not want it to see it coming. These people shouldn't have been put in a situation where they were this far at risk. Like those in charge knew they could have been doing more and they just they just didn't. I really do feel for the families. These guys were just doing a job, a very dangerous job, a very well compensated job, but a job nonetheless. And I think it just goes to show to those of you out there that are doing hard labor jobs like this, you are putting your life on the line. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're being well compensated. And I 100% believe that you should strike if you're not. And I hope you're safe. Yes, absolutely. Charlotte, any thoughts before we end this uh, grisly tale off? I'm still not sure that I wouldn't do it for the money, but I would want there to be safety protocols in place. But it certainly does give you food for thought. You know what I realized? The people on the Buy for Dolphin died in this kind of a scenario trying to make money. And the people aboard the Titan died in this kind of scenario after spending a lot of money. It's funny how it comes full circle that way. Right? All right. We we have some stuff to share, I suppose, don't we? Yes, I suppose we do. (laughs) All right. In case you haven't heard it, folks, December 9th, we are doing our first live show. How cool is that? Yeah, I'm super stoked, man. I haven't done any sort of like, I don't know if I would call it performance art, but there's going to be an audience. So I guess so. I'm quite nervous, but very excited. Oh, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. Tickets are going to be available hopefully soon. We are just waiting to uh, get all that info, which should be any day now. So we're going to post all that good stuff when it comes through. And when we have all the info for you, but we're we're excited. It's going to be awesome. And uh, I'm rambling because I'm excited. (laughs) We hope to see a lot of you there. Hopefully, if you're in the area or willing to travel to the area, we will see your beautiful and bright faces. It's going to be a good time. And uh, that does bring us, speaking of amazing people, to that part of the show where we thank our grim vips and up if you have not checked out our patreon i highly recommend that you do we're going to be making some changes to it um i you know we've had the patreon for just about a year now Mm -hmm. which is crazy um so we're going to be making some changes like i said and uh, making it more fun and more exciting and providing you guys with more amazing content so a huge thank you to bob lisa atlantean jedi Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevin, and Mayhem Mudkip. Y'all are the titty city and you are the cat's pajamas. Also, if you are here with us on Saturday at our live YouTube premiere, hello, welcome, thank you so much for listening and hanging out with us today. If you're listening to this on any other day of the week, we still love you, but what are you doing? Come check us out on Saturdays. We love to chat with you guys about what's going on in the episode. Oh, we have so much fun on YouTube. It's like one of my favorite parts of doing this is getting to talk to everyone as we like tell the story. It's part of my Saturday routine now. It's like I sit down, I'm ready to talk about whatever it is we've covered during the week. You guys have some wonderful facts to add to the stories a lot of the time and if not we just banter about it right it's a good time so check us out and also if you're not subscribed to the youtube channel go do that because that'd be cool of you absolutely and if you are listening elsewhere on all those different podcast platforms feel free to give us a follow it definitely helps us grow um next week is episode 80 
And uh, we're starting a brand new series. I'm not saying what it is. Trust me. She's a big one. She certainly is. Lots of drama, too. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Dina, you know how, unfortunately, Pluto is not considered a planet by most of the world anymore? You mean the people that are wrong? The people who also think that other people are wrong are the folks of New Mexico, because the guy who discovered Pluto is a New Mexico native, so when Pluto is over New Mexico, they consider it a planet once more. I'm so glad. Isn't that so wholesome? I love it. I'm really happy for Pluto. Yes. Bye. Bye. Bye.